Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, here as always with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, this is one of those episodes where you've sort of made it easy on me because we focus today on a list that you produced in a recent column, Ten Commandments for the Next President. So I'm just going to have you walk us through each of these and articulate what you mean here. And we'll start with the first commandment, do not deflect blame onto others. Yeah, I, I think that people got uh, Churchill after he after the British lost to Brooke in 42 summer 42 he 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 went before the House of Commons and explained why he was shocked, why it was a bad thing, why um what how it happened and he didn't blame anybody. And I think what's what we've grown up with the last 8 years is George Bush did this, he did Iraq. He did Syria. He did this, not me. Uh, they didn't. I didn't do a red line. The UN did a red line. No, the Congress did a red line. Uh, I didn't make the deficit get up to a trillion. Uh, George Bush pulled out his Bank of China credit card. So that's unbecoming a president. So I think that when these problems come, I mean, Harry Truman didn't say, uh, say uh, "Wow." FDR had plans to demobilize before I, I became president. That's why we're unprepared for Korea. Or Eisenhower didn't say, "I'm bringing it, taking everybody out," because wow, Truman. It was Truman's war, not mine. So you you don't want to blame people. I think. Second commandment, sort of the flip side of that, I guess. Share credit for success. Yeah, well, that's unfortunately when you start saying me, mine, my, I. My advisors, my team, my staff, my this, my that. Then you get the impression that the president's narcissistic, and he needs to uh, to get curb the use of the the first person. And I'll give you one example. When he made the decision to take out Bin Laden, it wasn't. I mean, it was most people were. I think most people would have done the same thing. Now, I'm not to taking away credit for it, but the people who did it were the military who planned it, the officers and the analysts, and then the brave people that went in there. And remember when it was over, he says, I'm not going to spike the, the ball about this. I'm not going to chest thump. And then all of us, that was about one second. And then we heard for the next year, GM is alive and bin Laden's dead. And da, 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 I killed bin Laden. And it, it didn't, it didn't go well. The third commandment here, do not utter threats. <laughs> well, we have ordered red lines, and then we, he's, he didn't enforce them. Yeah, I think he had five deadlines to Iran. He had step-over lines to Putin. The problem with that is not only did he not enforce them, and not only did, does the president look weak and his country weaker, but when you do follow them, it's almost, well, I had to do it, or it's dutiful. It's not inspired. It's much better to be Teddy Roosevelt and speak softly and carry a big Dick and even Donald Trump understood that when he said, "We you cannot be predictable, and uh, you don't want to talk. You want to do something." So Obama would have been much better uh, when they used uh, gas against a thousand Syrians. That we could have woken up the next morning and he could have taken out uh, Bashar Assad's palace and then just said, "Talk to you later about it." No comment. It would have been much more effective, and people would have feared him. Now they don't. The fourth commandment here, do not publicly insult foreign leaders. Interesting caveat here, whether enemies or friends. Yeah, I, I, I read that long Atlantic Magazine interview with Jeffrey Goldberg and it was just astounding because uh, whatever we think, leading from behind was an American project. We, we did the heavily lifting. We were the ones that 
uh, decided not to go in on the ground and nation build. Um, we were the ones that uh, had the Benghazi disaster, and yet he blamed Sarkozy and said he was showboating. And then he blamed David Cameron for not bringing along the British Parliament. And then he blamed the Europeans because they were closer to Libya than we are. And it, it was really, I mean, it was really disturbing. So he turned them off, just like he's blamed Netanyahu. And then why make fun of Putin? There's, Putin is a creature of emotion. So when you call him a class cut up or he's into macho stick or whatever you say to him, it only gratuitously gets him angry to do something that he otherwise might have done. Again, you know, Churchill and Roosevelt did not personally insult Hitler until they had the muscle to, to really do it. And then they just, they just took care of him, but they didn't constantly bait him. Hitler did that. The Japanese did that, but we sort of just ignored him and bombed the crap out of him. And that's a lot better, I think. <laughs> so the fifth commandment here, the first clause here may surprise people, uh, maybe until they hear the second. Fifth commandment here, praise soft power, but put little faith in it. Yeah, I'm all for co coalitions. I'm all for economic uh, boycotts. I'm all for um, rhetorical values. I'm all for all of that stuff. But ultimately, when you're dealing with thugs, they only care about hard power. So um, we need to build up our resources and military resources. And if China tries to impose a no-fly zone over these artificial islands right in the middle of the South China Seas, then we need to go in and fly over it and see what they do about it. And if Putin goes into Latvia or Estonia, then we need to stop him. And all the, the, the UN resolutions in the world won't do anything. It's good. It's not, it's not good to make fun of those things. It just, they don't do, it's sort of like the Munich agreement or, or, um, Obama talking about red lines uh, or all this talk and rhetoric is of no value really. Which leads us logically into the sixth point on this list. Do not expect to make a lasting bargain, breakthrough treaty or new friendship with a thug. Yeah, I, I didn't understand our special relationship with Erdogan. I mean he – the Turkish um, president. He's trying to overthrow Turkish democracy. He's a thug as is – uh, the Hamas leadership, as are the Iranians, as are the Cubans, as was Hugo Chavez, as is Putin. So why would you think you could reset with Putin or you could you could have a new deal that Iran's going to follow when you at the same time are sort of alienating the only constitutional government in the Middle East, the Israeli government, and our partners like France and and Britain. So what makes a treaty last or it sanctioned is the person who gives his word. It's not the giving your word as part of the treaty. So you can make bad treaties with honest people and they'll keep their word. You can make good treaties with people who are dishonest and they it won't be worth anything. And unfortunately, Obama seems to reach out to people who are anti-democratic and illiberal. The seventh commandment here, do not trust periodic bursts of hysteria from politicians celebrities, media figures, or pundits? Well, we saw that with Libya. All of a sudden, Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power said, we got to go. We were too late in Egypt. Let's get rid of Gaddafi. And suddenly everybody wanted to go in there and bomb Gaddafi. And of course, after we bombed him and got rid of him, uh, and Hillary chuckled and said, you know, we came, we saw Gaddafi died. 
then the whole country imploded and then you couldn't find anybody that was for it. Same thing with the Iraq war. Um, after the statue fell, I think it was about 75% approval rating. And then when the insurgency started six months later, you couldn't find anybody who said that, you know, he ever was for the Iraq war. So if I were a president, I would just assume that when the media and the pu public are calling to go bomb or to go to intervene, whether that is wise or not has nothing to do with their loud uh, vocal professions. It, it's just a logical matter. And you should assume that when you go do something, if it's successful, everybody's going to claim credit. And if it's not successful, they're going to blame you. I think Kennedy said after the Bay of Pig that, that a success has a thousand parents and failures an orphan. And that's pretty much true of a presidency. The eighth item on this list here, one that will be familiar for people who've heard you talk about the tragic view of the world in the past, except that some problems are for the present intractable. Well, and I was thinking here often of the Middle East. Every president comes in and says, I'm going to solve the Middle East. There is no right. solution for the Middle East because the Palestinians are weak and they don't want to become Western and they don't want to become Singapore or Hong Kong or Taiwan. They could, and but they don't want to adopt the cultural protocols that would give them material success. And so they look right across that fence and they see these Jews out in the middle of the desert who created a 21st century utopia and they hate them for it. And then we have all of these, uh, these extraneous issues. Uh, I mean, if you think for a minute, in 1945, 46, 47, there were 13 million Germans that were ethnically cleansed from East Prussia, Poland, Czechoslovakia. Okay, maybe they deserved it, maybe they didn't, given the crimes of the Third Reich, but they were all reabsorbed back in Germany. You don't hear any German today saying, I'm going to blow myself up in Danzig uh, because now it's called Gdansk. And you don't talk about the Sudland Germans or the Volga Germans because they came back and they, they gave it up. And Prussia now is sort of like Byzantine and, and Vandal. It's an, it's an adjective. It doesn't represent anything anymore. It disappeared. So the Palestinians lost what they called the, you know, the place where Israel is. And then they just stewed in their juices and they didn't, they didn't move on. And so I don't think anybody's going to go in there and say, you know, you've got to accept Israel's right to exist as long as they're culturally or economically or spiritually have a chip on their shoulder. It won't – you can't have peace between unequals. And so we should just leave it alone and say, you know what, come back and talk to us when you guys want to grow up and you want to make a, a successful society like Dubai or something. But until then, I'm not going to listen to all these grievances. The Ninth Commandment, speak nicely of – but never rely on the leadership of the United Nations. Yeah, you don't want to be some paleocon that's always talking about UN conspiracies. And it's nice. George Bush was wise to try to get a UN resolution uh, to go in Iraq. I think Bill Clinton should have tried to get one to go into. He finally did to, to bomb in Kosovo, but I think it wasn't until we started bombing. Maybe it was good. Maybe it was wise to get one in Libya, but we shortly violated it. But other than that, the only time the UN has ever done anything was when um, the Russia was boycotting it because of the question of China, and they actually sent some troops into Korea in fifty and fifty one. But other than that, I don't, I can't think of anything the United Nations has done that uh, 
on its own that, that had any lasting effect. Sometimes the United States hides behind it and does the heavy lifting, but more or less it's, it's just a debating society. And, and why is that? Because it functions as a democracy with people who are undemocratic. So the only time in their, their life that a UN diplomat has ever voted is in New York when he goes back to most of his places in Asia or Africa or Latin America, they don't vote. So they're illiberal minded people. And then they, we come to a New York and just because they vote pass some resolution against Israel, we think, wow, that's legitimate. It's sort of like what Plato said about thieves, you know, just because when thieves rob a bank and they want to have to divvy up the loot and three vote to, to divvy it up and two vote, uh, vote no, doesn't mean they're Democrats. And the last item on your list, never criticize or apologize for the United States while abroad. Yeah, that was, I, I wrote that before uh, Obama was in Argentina this week and he had just apologized for uh, what he thought was the Nixon administration's wink and nod to the Argentine dictatorship, which probably might, may or may not have been true. But think of that for a second. A long gone dictatorship that had the blood of 20,000 people on its hands, Obama apologizes for. But he just left a dictatorship that's not long gone, but it's presently in power. And it's killed about the same number of people, 20,000. And he not only did not uh, wash his hands, um, he went to a baseball game and did the wave with Raul Castro. I suppose, according to Obama's logic, that the next president, when he comes into office, is going to have to give a press conference and say, I apologize for Barack Obama going to China, uh, excuse me, to Cuba and consorting with a known mass murderer. That's not what Americans do. In fact, he could give an apology tour about all the things we've done from letting thousands of people getting killed in Syria to destroying Iraq. So I don't think that would be wise is what I'm getting at to go abroad and Churchill said that especially, when you're abroad, do not attack your own country. There's enough people in the world that will do it without you doing it. And unfortunately, whether it's the uh, apologies when he was in Turkey for supposed American genocide or when he was down with Daniel Ortega and he said, don't blame me, I was only three years old when all of these litanies of horrors happened that you recite or whether he was in Argentina the other day and said, Communism and capitalism are about the same. Obama's been the worst offender I think we've had since Jimmy Carter. So a president shouldn't do that. So a question here to close as we come to the end of the list. All of these points harken back. Sort of the headwaters of all of this is this question of sort of presidential temperament, presidential character. And I'm curious whether you think we have an electoral process – in America right now, not just the 2016 cycle, but in general, that you think is likely to yield a presidential temperament? No, I don't think it is. It's it's a celebrity culture, and most people are horribly educated. The universities have just been abjectly wanting. They they don't educate people anymore. These studies courses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we have a very ignorant electorate, and we're obsessed with our iPhones and our t- internet and cable TV. So. We elect showmen, so you know, make America great is about as banal and empty as hope and change or si se puede. Yes, we can. And so I don't see a person who's learned and serious necessarily making it. I mean, every once in a while, Lincoln or, or somebody like that, Reagan comes along, but it's very rare. And uh, I, I think we get what we deserve. So Trump is pretty much the 
the doppelganger or the mirror image of Barack Obama. All right. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.